0: Past Ball Show. Brought to you by John What the f
1: do you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f-
2: put that in. I don't f- So the tribe drops its third straight on this six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians. One run on, let's see. One hit. That's all we've got. One goddamn hit. ever
1: put out in the 100 years of the present time. Sell the team. Thank God
2: for am living today. Harry Kerry is the sportscaster of Cubs Park. Baseball games happen over at the ballpark. About 37 million people attend the home games over there too. The Cubs are on their way.
0: Welcome aboard John Pielli Pass Ball Show right here on the MTR Radio Network. Of course, check everything out on JohnPielli.com, All my interviews, my past shows, as well as Bases Empty blog, which keeps you updated on all the stuff, both historical and conventional in regards to Major League Baseball. If you're a baseball fan, uh, it's something you definitely got to check out. At least give it a shot. Obviously, um, a, lot, a lot of feedback, a lot of positive feedback. We keep that going on the program. Um, interactive here, right here on johnply.com and mtrradio.com. Tweet at me at john underscore Pielli, Some of the things that I talk about, whether it's an interview, whether it's a point I make, whether it's something I cover, I welcome all feedback, positive and negative and uh, just just enjoy sharing some of the some of the history of Major League Baseball, and obviously you hear it in the beginning there, and it's a guy that I always throw a tribute to because I, I actually think that uh, for a guy that didn't have very much, Wesley Willis was able to accomplish a lot. And you know, I know you don't really like to get off baseball too often, right here on the Passball Show, but you know, Wesley Willis is always going to be a favorite of mine for a guy that didn't have a voice, didn't necessarily have a talent, even his ability to play the keyboard is not something that really stands out. But this is a guy that uh, continued to get some recognition and released over a 1,000 songs, and the song you heard right there is, of course, Wrigley Field, and <laughs> Wrigley Field celebrated its 100-year anniversary. Before I get into that, I just wanna give a little preview of a couple things going on. Um, in Major League Baseball. We're going to go over some ups, some downs, some of the things you've seen over the first couple weeks. I I do have a a little bit of a perspective to give on what's gone on with the New York Mets organization since Sandy Alderson took over as a general manager. And I also have an interview today with Denny McLean, the last 30-game winner in Major League Baseball. And uh, we, we definitely get into a lot of stuff that's going to be coming within this hour. But we're going to start out talking a little bit about Wrigley Field and Wrigley Field in Chicago, the second oldest stadium uh, still up and functioning in Major League Baseball history outside of Fenway Park, who, of course, is uh, just a couple of years older than that. But uh, Wrigley Field celebrates 100 years, and you think of everything that's happened. Um, in the history of the Chicago Cubs, the majority of it has happened uh, within 100 years of Wrigley Field being around. And a lot of people don't know that Wrigley Field was actually the home of what would have been a Federal League baseball team. Uh, A Federal federal League, those of you who aren't familiar with that, came around in 1914 and was uh, invented and created to battle and compete with uh, um, any of the other major baseball leagues, whether it's the, the National League, the American League. Uh, a lot There was a lot of rival leagues around that time that were trying to become a major league similar to what they saw in what at the time was the National League and the American League. But let's be honest, before we start talking about the Federal League and Wrigley Field and its history, let's understand that the National League and the American League Prior to 1914, we're not talking about two uh, juggernauts, two well-established, well-oiled machines that are operating at this time. I mean, as late as the 1950s, with Casey Stengel talking to Congress uh, about you know Major League Baseball and talking about how this is the best baseball that's ever been created in the last hundred years, and as silly as it sounds, he actually (laughs) makes some good points compared to things that were going on in the early part of the 1900s. I mean. But the Na- the National League had been around since the early part of the 1870s. Is been It was more established than the American League at that time. Remember, the American League started in 1901 and the World Series started in 1903. And after the Giants and John McGraw refused to play in a, what would have been the World Series in 1904, the World Series between the National League and the American League became very standard starting in 1905. But we're talking about rival leagues coming in there. There was the Players League and, of course, there was the Federal League, which started in 1914, and they, they got themselves a team in Chicago called the Chicago Whale. And like I said, we're talking about a rival baseball league to compete with the National League and the American League, and a lot of people invested a lot of money in this, and they thought that this was going to be a league where they're going to get a lot of players to jump ship and switch over to and perhaps becoming a major league. And one of the things that were built was this new State of the art at the time, ballpark, and they called it Wegman Park, named after Charles Wiegman, who was one of the founding fathers of this new federal baseball league. And you know, there was a lot of money involved in it. And you look at the the what what was existed in this ballpark. Um, it was kind of had a little bit of an advantage over some of the other ones that had been created at the time. And remember, Yankee Stadium didn't come out until 1923. Uh, Fenway Park had started a couple years earlier, and this. This, this field over here called Wiegman Park kind of had some advantages over what you saw in some other baseball stadiums. So it just showed how much this guy Wiegman and a lot of people involved in the founding of this Federal Baseball League thought that this thing really had a shot. And of course, it didn't work out that way. It only lasted for two seasons with uh, the uh, Chicago Whales and every other team becoming defunct after the 1915 season. So they have this stadium, this, this league that's been uh, you know kind of uh, there but not anymore, uh, doesn't exist anymore. And you got this baseball stadium and it's only a couple of years old. So the National League Chicago Cubs decide to move in there for the 1916 season. And of course, they've been there ever since. Um, If you look at really what's happened throughout the history of the ballpark, um, there's an American pro football team put there called the Chicago Tigers in 1920. A year later, um, the Chicago Bears of the NFL started to play their home games there, where they were played through 1970. Through the years of 1931 and 1939, a second Chicago NFL team shared Wrigley Field, what was Wrigley Field at the time, with the Bears. Uh, Chicago would eventually add a North American soccer team to the mix with the Chicago Sting playing their home games there from 1977 to 1982 and 1984. Like I said before, it was originally called Wiegman Park, uh, a name that lasted through the 1919 season. From 1920 to 1925, it was simply called Cubs Park before the stadium was named after the owner and chewing gum tycoon, Philip K. Wrigley, for the 1926 season. So Wrigley Field's been known as that since 1926, been in existence since 1914. And obviously, if you trace back the history of the Chicago National League franchise, it all goes back to the year of 1876 when they became a National League franchise franchise and had a little bit of success initially about 10 years in in 1886 they ended up playing they ended up winning the national league and playing what was at that time known as the world series and they placed they played against the second place team from st louis called the browns and the, the series ended up being a tie as best of seven series ended up going 3-3-1 even though the cubs finished eight games ahead of the browns in the division a year later uh, the browns ended up winning the division. And they also defeated the Cubs in the World Series, four games to two. And then we go 20 years later, in 1906, as we, I mentioned before, the start of World Series play between the American League and the National League. And the Cubs make their first appearance in the World Series in 1906. They ended up losing to the Chicago White Sox in six games. But the Cubs ended up having what becomes their franchise's uh, glorified and super moment. Where they win the World Series in 197 and 198. Obviously, nobody knows that it's going to be so many years later, and the Cubs will never win a World Series uh, up through this date. But of course the cubs with tinkers to evers to chance and of course some of the players that they had them defeat the detroit tigers in both the 1907 and the 1908 world series they end up making it back to the world series in 1910 going up against connie mack and a young crew that he has down there and the, the athletics win the first out of three world series that they end up winning in four years But that ends the history prior to what ends up becoming Wrigley Field. And, of course, 100-year anniversary of Wrigley Field, uh, the Cubs moved to their new stadium in 1916. And they end up making a postseason in 1918 winning the National League pennant, losing to the Boston Red Sox in six games. The Cubs make it back to the Fall Classic in 1929 where they lost to the Athletics, 32 when they lost to the Yankees. 35 when they lost to the Tigers, 38 when they lost to the Yankees, and 1945, losing again to the Tigers. So that's five World Series losses that they've had in the history of Weakman's Park slash Wrigley Field. Uh, prior to the Weakman Park Wrigley Field, the Chicago National League franchise was 2-3-1 and one in World Series play. Since, the Cubs have gone 0-6 oh, in World Series play. The Cubs have not been to a World Series, of course, since 1949. They did have some close calls, narrowly missing out on the 1969 NL East title to the eventual World Series champion Mets, losing to the NLCS in 1984 after leading the best of five series two games to nothing against the San Diego Padres in 1984 and of course failing to close out the NLCS after leading three to one in 2003 against the Florida Marlins they also missed out on a World Series chance in 1989 when they lost four to one in this in the best of seven series in the NLCS to the Chicago Cubs the Cubs of course now we talk about 2014 you know they're off to a little bit of a slow start But hopes are the team could be a little stronger because of their farm system. Guys like Javier Baez, Jorge Soler, eventual third baseman Chris Bryant should become part of the new heart of the Cubs order as they should become a tougher team over the next couple seasons. The fans that root for the Cubs, just like every other franchise in Major League Baseball, deserves what most of those teams have seen since 1988, and that's a world series championship and you know hopefully this young nucleus of players will kind of get the team in that direction and obviously the red sox had their drought of 86 years that ended in 2004 the cubs drought right now is in season number 106 without a without a title 69 years since they've last been in a world series what can make a cub fan feel a little better is knowing that there are cities that have never seen a world series at all and understand, 1980 is a long time. We're probably talking about at least three generations with just about everybody. Sometimes, uh, in some cases, younger people will be even more than that. But there are some cities that have never had a World Series championship ever. We got the Tampa Bay Rays, and I know they came around in 1998, the Colorado Rockies in 1993, but. Uh, Seattle hasn't seen one since their inception in 1977. San Diego has not seen one since their inception in 1969. Montreal, a- as storied of a franchise as the Expos were from 1969 to 2004, never saw a World Series. And Houston Astros, Houston, Nicole 45s, whatever, have not won a World Series since their inception in 1962. Uh, The Brewers have never been in one since they became an expansion team in 1969 with the Seattle Pilots. Of course, in 1957, they won a World Series as as the Braves franchise, Um, the descendants of what was the Boston Braves, which we talked a little bit about last week. And of course, the Kansas City Athletics, who existed from 1955 to 1967, never got to or won a World Series. But what, what has been fascinating about the history of Wrigley Field is obviously the fact that you got the ivy that Bill Veck put in there. And, you know, when he took over as, as the uh, we're talking about William Veck, the first uh, when he became the owner of the Cubs, put that ivy out there, which is a staple, something that you think of when it's when you remember the stigma of Wrigley Field, the ivy. And, of course, the scoreboard where the people still put the numbers in the scoreboard. And how about their history of playing day games there? Remember, it wasn't until 1988 where the Cubs actually played a night game at Wrigley Field. They had all those years when they didn't have lights at the stadium. And remember, in 1984, if they ended up winning, the, uh, getting to the World Series, beating the Padres in that best-of-five series, uh, they were, they were going to start the World Series in the American League Park, which ended up becoming the Detroit Tigers. But uh, remember, at the time... Uh, the National League and the American League rotated the parks each year. World Series was in the American League park one year and National League park the other year. And of course, I'm talking about home field advantage, but uh, the Cubs, because they didn't have lights in their stadium, uh, the way obviously the winter settings and stuff like that, you know, the sun goes down. It's, you know, so the the day games were going to be played on Saturday and Sunday, which ended up being what would have been games three, four, and five of the series. So the Cubs would have lost... Uh, home field advantage in 1984 but just the fact that you know there's so much old history not just with the stadium but the scoreboard and history of night games I mean you look at something that is is created a history in itself with the stadium and you know I think you got to be proud if you're a baseball fan and if you haven't had a chance to see Wrigley Field hopefully it's around for many more years but certainly represents baseball history in the best way possible and of course uh, you know, we know about the Ivy, the scoreboard, like I just mentioned. But, you know, when it opened up, and just my last fact I'm going to mention here. When it opened up for the Federal League Baseball team, the Chicago-Wales, in 1914, the capacity for the stadium, seating-wise, was 14,000. It currently sits at 41,072 people at the start of the 2014 season, exactly 100 years later. John Piele, Passball Show. MTR Radio Network, of course, johnpiele.com, the whole thing. Tweet at me at john underscore piele. What we're going to do is take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by the last 30-game winner in Major League Baseball, and that's Denny McLean. He had a very good uh, run in the late 60s for the Detroit Tigers, pitched well over 300 innings several seasons, ended up having some issues with his arm and wasn't as effective in the 70s. But, you know, some interesting facts that we get into, and hopefully you guys enjoy the spot. But it'll be on the other side of this break right here on the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPelli.com. Hey, I'm Sean Big Daddy Lynch. I'm Joe Della Sandy. And I'm Tim O'Brien. And, and we're, we're your favorite tailgaters. tailgaters.
2: Listen to our show every Tuesday morning from 11 to 12 on MTR Radio.
0: We'll tempt your palate with football, basketball, baseball, hockey, you name it, we got it. That's right, we do. We'll stir things up, voice what's grinding our gears, Just talk plain sports. We hold nothing back. Sports Talk
2: Radio, are you ready for the tailgaters?
0: This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to mtrradio.com, fantastic. ¡Qué bueno! But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. Yeah, welcome back, John Pass Passball Show. Don't forget to check out JohnPLA.com. Tweet at me at John underscore Pelle. before any further. Uh, we're gonna play an interview I recorded with the last 30-game winner in Major League Baseball. And we talk about records or feats or accomplishments that we're never gonna see again. Obviously, a starting pitcher or any pitcher for that matter, winning 30 games in a season is something that's almost as impossible to do as throw three straight no hitters, let's be honest, or hitting 57 straight games. Or hit 400. I mean, we've seen a couple players approach 400. You know, Rod Carew, George Brett, Tony Gwynn made little runs for it. Even Joe Maurer had a nice chase uh, not that long ago for 400. And, you know, as as much as you want to say that 400 will never happen again, uh, you will certainly see 400 or may see 400 before you'll ever see a 30 game winner in Major League Baseball. We're going to hit a point because of the way pitchers are used with the pitch counts and six innings being a quality start, that 20 games to win in a season might become obsolete. But we're going to talk right now with the last pitcher to win 30 games in a major league season. And of course, he was 31-6 for the 1968 World Series champion Detroit Tigers. And that, of course, is Denny McClain. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with the Tigers right-hand pitcher.
1: Good afternoon, it's John Piali. I'm happy to be joined by former Major League pitcher Danny McLean. Danny, thanks for having a couple minutes today.
2: Yeah, hey, how are you?
1: I'm pretty good, man. Very good. Hey, Danny, man. One of the questions I always like to ask, and uh, you know, of course, you you know, you play you play baseball quite quite a while ago. Uh, tell tell us a little bit about growing up and what what got you into baseball.
2: No, I suppose it's uh, not much different than what it is today. Uh, your dad, if you're lucky enough to uh, make half the families in this world or divorce anyway, but if you're lucky enough to have a dad who's a little bit athletic and wants to take time with you in the backyard and teach you some of the fundamentals at an early age, you get lucky. And I had one of those dads that come out of World War II, unfortunately, and no injuries and what have you. He was quite an athlete himself. In fact, uh, uh, he was asked, the Cubs and White Sox and uh, the Giants were, tried to pursue him to sign a, a, a professional contract. And uh, my mother said, if you baseball, for me. And, uh, of course, he uh, was, was a good break for me because I was later born between those two. Uh But uh, the bottom line is um, I, was, I was blessed with a, with a great father and mother. And they made sure that uh, I did, did a couple of things, went to school was, uh, and still is one of the biggest things in my life, and then, of course, uh, the pitching and the sports and the athletics and what have you, which was a, which was a requirement in the house, and uh, and my dad, because he was such a great athlete, well, he had all the ability to teach, so, um, you know, I was one of the luckier guys, and I, well, I suppose that goes on.
1: Very true, and you, you know, one other thing you got to learn when you were younger, as you mentioned about music, you learned how to play the organ. Now, did you, did, did you learn, how, did you start music first, or was it baseball first for you? No, 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 it was athletics first, I mean, we athlete first, and
2: uh, that type of stuff, and um, I mean, every father, I think, wants his to go off to be a professional player in some sport, including golf now, so, uh, but no, the, the music came at from the age of seven or eight, uh, and, um, you know, they gave me the ability to get that education and get that degree, and, uh, you know, that was a, a marvelous thing. I, I was with the Ham Oregon Piano Company for 30 years, Traveled on the road, worked Vegas and hundreds of other spots throughout the country. and uh, Had a great time. It, it provided a great living for my
1: family. Yeah, no question. Now, you know, as you're, as you're going up, what about what age are you when you feel or when you realize that you have a chance to, to play baseball professionally or that you have the skills, the talent, the ability? Well, my dad at the age of,
2: well, I think it was 11, 10 or 11, just told me that, um, you know, you're the shortstop, I was the catcher, and much like everybody else probably listening to the show. You play all positions if you're the star of the team. Of course. And um, my dad wanted me to be a catcher actually to begin with, and then as, as I got a little bit older, with age 9, 10, 11, and then 12, uh, I was still the ball, uh, you know, faster than anybody had seen in recent higher area for 11 or 12 year all. So uh, he started to focus on pitching, in fact, I got a four-year had the first four year uh, high school scholarship to uh, Mount Carmel High School in Chicago for baseball. And um, uh, then I was offered, of course, the first uh, baseball contract, uh, baseball scholarship to Notre Dame, which we eventually turned down because the uh, Major League Club, the Chicago White offered me $17,500 in '62 to play professional baseball. So that's the reason we didn't go to Notre Dame. But uh, the bottom line was it, was, it was the right thing to do, and, and uh, my dad saw that I, I throw the ball hard, but I threw strikes, and, uh, you know, that's a, that's a horrendous, terrific combination when you're 12 and 13 years old, I throw the ball hard and strikes. Because going to hit
1: you at your own age level. No, very true, man. Now, b- back on this, this decision, I mean, I get a you know, scholarship to Notre Dame. Obviously, you talked about uh, you know how it had to be weighing on your mind. Was it was it a tough decision for you uh, to, to either sign uh, with the I'm, North I'm, Sox? You know, not one You know, listen, My dad made about uh, seven, $8,000 a year, $9,000 a year back then. It wasn't much money. And uh, when
2: something, my dad died when I was 13, by the way. Oh, wow. And. Uh, Twice as much money as my dad had made the day he died uh, was hard for me to believe. I mean, seventeen thousand five hundred dollars. Uh, I mean, at that point in time, you don't know the value of money at eighteen years old. And uh, the bottom line, simply was it looked like a million to me. Uh, and uh, despite the fact it was seventeen five, I bought two brand new cars, one for me, one for my mother. Paid off the house, and I uh, bought a whole bunch of clothes. And still had six thousand dollars left. So. Everything's relative. I mean, I, I suppose 17.5 or probably a couple, two, three hundred thousand today, and it would be all relative as to what the economy is at this moment, too. But uh, no, I was. Uh, I, I was very pleased when I walked in with the check. Cause I, you know, I, I wanted to go to Notre Dame, but I much preferred to play professional baseball.
1: Now, did you play any other sports when you were younger? Or Was, was baseball just your thing?
2: Played, I, played, I played basketball uh, for a couple of years, and I played football for a year. Uh, I was a throwing fullback. And my the small carmel, the baseball coach, father Austin Coop. Uh, when he found out, I had gone out and made the football team. Uh, he immediately threatened me by saying, if you stay on the football team, you will lose your scholarship because I'm not going to let any of the other sports here allow you to play. Your deal was for baseball and only baseball, and that's the way it will be. Well, that's all I had a year because there's no one That year back in the it cost us about $1,400 a year to go there if you didn't have a scholarship. So the 1400 a year back then was an awful lot of money. And uh, so what happened was I... Uh, Quit playing uh, football right away, and then uh, went out and made the basketball team. I didn't think, I didn't think, I really didn't believe that he was serious about basketball because he kept in such great shape. And I played about uh, almost a half a season, uh, and I and I and I got uh, whacked in a uh, basketball game. I think it was at Weber Catholic School in Chicago, and I got whacked going up for a rebound. Some guy just cold cocked me and uh, knocked me out and started. Austin Coop was standing over me when I woke up in the ER room and said there'll be no more basketball. And uh, he didn't even have to ask me really hard because I didn't want to get cold caught again. <laughs> yeah, that
1: shot that shot that I had probably did it to you. Yeah, you you made that now, decision on your own. Yeah. Now, of course, once again, John Pierre here with Danny McClain. Of course, yeah, you mentioned you signed, you signed with the White Sox, and you know you, you end up pitching in, in a minor leagues for them. You end up doing very well. Um, talk a little bit about when you were you were left unprotected by them, and then Tigers ended up picking you up. Um, so what
2: happened was uh, Al Lopez, who was uh, allegedly a genius when it came to pitching and managing with the Chicago White Sox and Cleveland Indians and some other teams. Al Lopez, uh, after um, I was 18, I just turned 19, which is not, not quite 19 yet. And uh, Al Lopez um, said to me, a, we went to Mexico City for an exhibition game in spring training in 63. And I was just about 19 years old then, and he said to me, on the plane coming back, and I retired nine straight uh, hitters uh, in the Mexican league that night. And we had a big club there, we had all the players, Nelly Fox and some of the other stars that were with the White Sox at the time retired nine guys on about twenty pitches in three innings. And <clears throat> then on the plane going back to Sarasota, Florida for Mexico City. Uh, he asked me to sit next to him for a few minutes and said, Listen, let me tell you what we got a difficult decision to make to nothing. And uh, an hour later, I was put out waivers and the Chicago uh, the Detroit Tigers claimed me. As they say, the rest is history then. Uh, to just conclude this story, uh, I came up that year in 63 with the Tigers. Pitched my first game at Tiger Stadium against the Chicago White Sox. Won 4-3 and hit a home run my first time up. So, justice, Sometimes takes a little while, but I got my justice. I got my pound of
1: justice that day. Yeah, of course you did. And now as you've gone into this game, are you are you thinking about the you know, what what had happened to you and trying and trying to do what you ended up doing? Obviously you're you're out there pitching your first major league game, you're going out there to win no matter who the opponent was, but was it a little was it a, a little kind of added chip on your shoulder that it wasn't gonna Sox? Uh,
2: Of course it was. I mean, these are the guys that this guy told me I'd never be a big league pitcher. And uh, immediately after the ball game, I went in and, and, uh, you know, they had a little press conference, not much of a one for a 19-year-old kid. And uh, I was in and out of that shower about 30 minutes, and I walked down to the visiting clubhouse with our manager at the time, Charlie Dressen, because I wouldn't have gone by myself. And Charlie took me down there and reintroduced me to Al Lopez and and Lopez off. Uh, nice pitch of the day. I said, well, Mr. Lopez, I guess that makes us even, huh? He said, no. He said, we'll get you next time. Well, I had a great run against the White Sox, but I always had an extra, extra reason for going after the White Sox. So it was... Um it was a lot of fun to beat a club that uh, said you
1: would never be a big league pitcher. No, no question about it. Once again, John Pielli here with Danny McLean. Now yeah, in nineteen sixty seven, uh Johnny Sane comes over as the Tigers pitching coach. Um, you seem to hit it off pretty well with him. Tell tell us a little bit about um what you know, what you know, what Johnny Sane was able to do to to work with you and what Johnny Sane meant to
2: you. I think contrary to believe, uh, we, he and I didn't get along at first. Okay. Uh, he, had this, he had a pitcher too, that he wanted me to try. And I had already had some uh, pretty good success. I won 16. I won 20 already. And uh, in 67, I kind of 500 year with 17 and 16, but I didn't pitch so much of September, so I, didn't, I thought I'd win 20 again, of course. And uh, the bottom line is, uh, in 67, we started working on, I had, a, I had a big overhand curveball, I had a fastball, and I had a changeup. And uh, my fastball changeup, I think, at that time for a 20-year-old kid, was probably as good as, as, as I ever had. And uh, Johnny just said, listen, if I can teach you how to throw a particular kind of slider, would you be interested? I said, of course I would. I said, come on. I said, I'm to learn." And uh, so he started working. And he had to me who was our catching coach, and always went with Johnny wherever he went. Uh, They started working with me, and it took me, um, say the least, from the month of March when spring training started till the month of August uh, when I actually, actually learned how to throw the pitch. It took that long, and uh, where I wanted to throw, because I threw hard, and uh, uh, I did not want to throw a pitch that took a lot of velocity away from me, because, you know, when you get a guy going two, one, and two, the rule as you go after them all, that rule has certainly changed today. There's no change-ups now when you get a guy over two, which is really stupid baseball. to so. yeah. anyway, make a long story short, uh, I finally picked up this pitch, uh, and all of a sudden the lights started to go on, and I was throwing, a, and I was throwing this pitch on two and 3 and one, three and two, getting it over ninety percent of the time I thought it as my fastball. And as they say, the 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 Broadway the Broadway lights lit up. Of course, I got hurt eight more of that year in 67, but so when I went to spring training in 68, I was ready, and uh, of course, we, uh, we had a pretty good year in 68, so Johnny saying, uh, not only physically talking on to throw one or two pitches, but taught me how I could adopt those pitches and be able to do more things with those pitches, and then the Johnny's greatest side was his philosophy, his uh, uh, psychiatry, for life of a better term. Of how he worked on pitchers, and if you listen to Johnny, you had to be successful, and uh, Johnny knew his stuff, and if you just look at Johnny Sane's resume, first of all, as a player, when, when there used to be an old saying, uh, Spahn and Sane and played for rain. Of course. Uh, that's, how, that's how good those two guys were together, and uh, of course, uh, Spawn became a pitcher coach, didn't have the success that Johnny did, but I don't think Sane was a mechanic, uh, pitching because he could do anything with a baseball and knew how to do it. So if you listen to him, you had to learn. And if you had to learn, then you got good. Because it's all about once you have the pitches, it's all about confidence, number one, and number two, strikes. Don't nip it. Don't try to fool a guy. Don't try to make a guy look bad. Get him on into. and
1: And I tell you, now, the game has certainly changed from when you pitched. And uh, you know, just right before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about you know what you, what you kind of just built up to the 1968 season. You learned the slider. You come into spring training, obviously probably a lot a lot more confident than you have been before. Uh, and, and the season ends up going as good as as good as could be. The Tigers won the World Series. You win 31 games that year. Um, you know, what what are the things going through your mind? That, during this season? Was 30 wins something that was on your mind or was it just about going out there and winning as many games as possible?
2: Out my mind. I was just trying to. Be-
1: McLean, now let me transition, you know, what, what we're talking about in 1968 to modern day baseball. As you're throwing all these innings, which you're accustomed to year in and year out, you, you, you threw over 300, 300 innings, you know, more than once in your career, uh, did, did you ever suffer any type of arm fatigue or any, any type of arm problems while you were pitching, you know, as, as pitching as often as you did?
2: Every pitcher does, but uh, we we were fooled back then. Uh, I first hurt my rotator cuff um, in um, '66, and then uh, re-injured it a little bit more in '67 as I started to pitch more innings. And all of a sudden, it was introduced to cortisone, and uh, cortisone wound up being my uh, my blessed sacrament, for lack of a better term, at least according to the doctors. And, uh, in 67, I had about 9 or 10 cortisone shots. In 68, I had 18 or 19. And in 1969, when I thought I pitched as well as I've ever pitched in my life, I had 9 shots in 69. Uh, I had 26 cortisone shots. Wow. Uh, so if the cortisone was taking its toll, the injections were taking its toll, and the problem with cortisone, if they hit the spot, the inflammation, before you had the injury, Cortisol will help you. It's not a healing agent. People think it's a healing agent. It is not. It's got one job to take the inflammation out of the injury, because that's where all the pain comes from. So um, I had 26 shots, and uh, half of those shots they missed. They missed the inflammation. So here you are. You know you're you're okay once you're not okay the next time. But we were in pennant race, and you know what you do? You buckle up, you put your seatbelt on. And, and we wanted to win a pennant. We should have won it in '67. And I pitched in '67. The last month, I I think we won the pennant easy. Uh, and but we only lost it by half the game because I missed I missed the entire month of September. But in '68, uh, we rolled able to knock somebody on their ass like a, or a somebody else when they got a couple of hits in a row but we can send a message and you know, we can hit them and not get tossed out of a ballgame so um, you know we, we have the ability to send a message they don't have that ability to, and, and that's one of the things is that
1: Clean. Now, you know you look you look at the way the, the game has changed, and you talk about the mound, and obviously if you, you raise the mound a little bit, it's gonna you know do stuff to prevent arm injuries. Um, what do you what do you look at today in regards to to pitching and the way it's taught? Do you think? Do you think anything in regards to the pitchers coming out there just simply throwing, throwing hard and not as much mechanics?
2: No. First of all, the worst enemy that anybody's ever seen for a young pitcher is a radar gun. They pitch the radar gun. We've lost two or three pitchers here the last five or six years. Zumaya, Bonderman, who could throw the ball through walls, and all they wanted to do was pitch the radar gun. And what people have to realize, and everybody listening to this show, they play with those radar guns. They pump them up for the whole. So the whole crowd gets into the game. They want the call to the rally. They want that pitcher to throw the ball at 105 miles an hour, folks. Nobody throws the ball at 100 miles an hour. I don't care what anybody says. It just doesn't happen. Uh, and you know, if they were throwing the ball at 100 miles an hour, and we had guys winning 20 every year, the guy winning 30, how fast were we throwing? Were we at 110, 120? And, and here's the other thing: when you talk, you know, mentioned pitching coaches. Um, I don't understand, of course, as you may know or may not know, that there's, there's the old boy network in Major League Baseball, that a manager becomes a manager and then brings his favorite friend to be the pitching coach. Um, and those guys wind up in the big leagues for a long time. Uh, and I don't mind them getting their pensions and everything else. But what I do mind is when they bring a guy along that hasn't had any success in the big leagues and really doesn't know how to spin the ball right. Uh, so my, my point being made here is simple. If I'm going to hire a pitching coach, I want a guy who won in the Big leagues. I don't want a guy who was, was a guy that pitched 30 innings a year or one was a 500 pitcher and was never effective, didn't have one good pitch, didn't have good control. Uh, he's not supposed to be the pitching coach because he's not the guy that can help the Bondermans, that can help the Zamaia's. Because you need to have somebody like a Johnny say or a Charlie Treson or a Dave Duncan that can recognize the true fundamentals that a pitcher must maintain to pitch effectively. And we don't have that in the game today. There's very few good pitching coaches in the baseball game today. And that is what a lot, of besides the round, that is also what's affecting these pitchers getting hurt. They're doing things with their arm that are dangerous. Uh, it's, and one of which is preaching things that I do with young kids when we hold these pitching clinics, is I tell them, if you've got a curveball at 13 or 14 years old, you better worry about college because you're never going to be a professional player because your arm is not developed. It will never develop at 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 years old uh, if you're throwing curveballs and trying to throw sliders. Because first of all, most coaches don't know what the hell a real curveball or slider does. Pitcher's still in high school, you can still play baseball, you can still look good, and get that college scholarship, but make sure you get that college education, and that's what we tell every kid who attends our seminars. The first thing we talk about is education, then we'll talk about pitching, and we stress it, and my trick question in every seminar before we start is, all right, how many guys in this room got a good curveball? And you'll see out of 50 or 60 kids in a room, you'll see about 10 or 15 go up, and I'll say, let me see. And then, of course, later on, they get the chance to pitch. And the other ones, they'll say, well, why don't you have a curveball? This, this is a pretty big kid, and he's 17 and 18-year-old kids. And they'll say, well, my dad told you one night at a dinner and told me that if, if I ever got caught throwing a curveball or a slider, that he'd do to me what your dad told you he'd do to you. You don't have to worry about the big leagues. I'll break your elbow. So, um uh, uh that was one of the big lessons I learned in my life at the age of thirteen to Philly Daddy. So I ever catch you throwing a curveball or a slider, I don't worry about the big leagues. I will make sure that you don't pitch ever again. So uh now, and that's the message I'd like to send, if there's any kids, listen, you do not have the strength or the ability or the development to throw a curveball or a slider at 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18 years old. Wait, if you're going to be a professional player, wait till you get to the level that people can actually teach you how to play the game and teach you how to throw a curveball, teach you how to throw a slider. Because all the kids I've seen who's screwing around with this thing, they either land differently, they, they drop in their position for throwing the ball differently, rather than staying in the same position all the time as they deliver the fastball, all of a sudden you get the three-quarter arm. Because as we all know, if you stand the ball a little bit, three-quarter arm, you'll get a little curveball. But what the damage is doing to your elbow is being belief.
1: Yeah, very interesting. And, you know, you mentioned earlier about Johnny Sane teaching you the slider. Who taught you how to throw a curveball?
2: Um, actually uh, a pitcher, um, by the name of Frank Larry. Uh, Frank taught me how to throw a curveball when I first got to the leagues, and I really didn't have a good one for about three or four years. But uh because uh and, and I say this as candidly as I can, uh until nineteen seventy two, uh I threw more than ninety percent fastballs in every game. Ninety percent. And uh, the reason why is because I never saw anybody hit four or five hundred. I mean, uh, when a hitter goes three for ten, they call them it successful. It's 30%, three out of ten times a guy gets a hit. If a pitcher goes three and ten, they send him to Paducah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's never been a rationale for that. And, uh, you know, I've seen guys who were three and ten have pretty good stuff. Well, that's a goal. Cool because if you're three and ten, you haven't got very much going for you. And, and you know, I, and, uh, I played for Ted Williams for a year who hated pitchers, and the first thing he told me when I met him was, boy, do I hate pitchers, and I said, well, they're not as stupid as hitters, he said, what do you mean? I said, geez, you guys go uh, 25 or 100 times at bat, and you guys think you've had a successful year, we we, we go 3 and 10, you really think we're bad, you never call us stupid, but a hitter can only get a hit, 25 out of 100 times, what does that make them? And he never had an answer for me, and I did not have a real good relationship,
1: by the way. Oh, very interesting. And, uh, you know, as you as, as you go forward, like, all these years, and, you know, you mentioned about, you know, the clinics you do and teach in, did, did you ever consider, uh, you know, getting back into Major League Baseball or any any type of no, professional baseball been, as a pitching coach? Offered, I, have,
2: I was offered a, from a, a, a number of clubs uh, in the uh, late 70s, early 80s uh, for, uh, as a pitching coach, as a manager in the right You know, I had a family with four children, and uh, I had the keyboard. I remember I was with Hammond for 30 years, and uh, I made more money on the keyboards than I ever made in baseball. I made made, uh, lots and lots of money playing the keyboards. and working clubs in Vegas and everywhere else. Uh, I never made that kind of money in Major League Baseball. In my 10-year career, I made $445,000 when I was with Hammond. I made a whole lot more than that.
1: Very interesting. Listen, Denny, I want to thank you for having some time. Appreciate you giving me a couple minutes, and best of luck
2: to you. John, take care, and
0: everybody out there. Great getting a chance to catch up with who will be the last 30-game winner in Major League Baseball history, and, of course, that's Denny McLean. I'm going to finish up. We kind of had a pretty good historical first hour. We talked about the history of Wrigley Field. We brought in Denny McLean. And we're going to finish it off on on a little bit of a somber note, the passing of former Major League pitcher Connie Marrero. And Connie, of course, was the oldest living player in Major League Baseball at age 102. He was living out in Cuba and passed away the other day. Connie pitched in 118 games, made 94 starts over the course of four seasons for the Washington Senators. But what a lot of people don't know is the fact that he didn't make his Major League debut until 19... uh, 1950 when he was 39 years old and pitched from night from the years of 39 till he was 43 and a guy that obviously can trace so far back i mean he was born in the year of 1911 and you would think figure he could have traced baseball and on a major league level to the 30s and maybe at the very least the early part of the 40s but he didn't make his major league debut until 1950 and of course who is the oldest living player at age 102. And now, you know, we look back at the oldest living player right now. It happens to be Mike Sandlock, who is a catcher for the Boston Braves, Brooklyn Dodgers, and Pittsburgh Pirates at age 98 years and 188 days. Ray Hathaway, a pitcher who, who pitched in 1945 for the Brooklyn Dodgers, is 97 years old, 192 days, followed by Eddie Carnett, a outfielder for the Chicago White Sox and Indians from 1941 to 1945. And a guy that, uh, while I was on my Florida trip, we actually made a good effort to try to see Alex Munchak, who's a shortstop that played in the year of 1940 for the Philadelphia Phillies, is 97 years and 45 days. And Lenny Marullo, uh, shortstop who played for the Chicago Cubs from 1941 to 1947, is right now the fifth. Oldest major league baseball player at 96 years and 353 days. Big thanks to Denny McLean for being part of the program the first hour. Lots to get into. Five minutes. Hour number two of the passball show coming up. <laughs>